0: Hey, all Just popping in at the beginning of the episode here to let you know that we are happy to announce that you can now find Pontifacts on Lyceum. Lyceum is a podcast app focused on educational content, and all of the shows on the platform have been handpicked. Here's Lyceum's founder, Zach, to tell you a little bit more. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that changed the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance, and so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis, and this is episode 78, Pope Vitalian. What are you thinking? You know, you know I'm thinking Vital Italian. Vital <laughs> Italian. I mean, it kinda also sounds like it would be one of those, like, high protein, health conscious breakfast cereals. Oh my god. <laughs> like Vector and, you know, all of those ones. Yeah. Protein granola. Yeah, Vitalian Protein Granola. Comes in honey and chocolate. Dark chocolate, though. We must stay healthy. No sugar alcohols. (laughs) Oh, that's a good thing. Those are murder for you. Yeah, this man. Pope Vitalian Granola. It is the first day of our isolation fry. Aren't we gonna make it? No, Monday was already terrible for me. Oh yes, you started before me. I'm now officially, this is day one for me, because, you know, I'm self-employed and pushed it as far as I could, but, you know. I'm on day three. You already heard my teenager yell at me. <laughs> it's true. My my dogs will continue to boof, but at least there's someone here to keep them quiet today. So, isolation starts now. Hopefully, these episodes don't just turn into, like, rampant cabin fever as we go. But, uh, yeah, we're on it. If you're listening, we are currently using our isolation to build you a backlog, so you're welcome. <laughs> ASMR. Oh, do we have to- wh- I'm not whispering this whole episode to you. I will lose my voice quicker. You know, Vitalian was born in insane. Oh god, it sounds terrible. No. Nope. <laughs> okay, no ASMR, I'm sorry. Vitalian was born in Segni in the Lazio region of Italy, and his father was Anastasius. Ooh, again? Like, okay. Not any Anastasius we already know, right? No, not an Anastasius we already know, but it's me, Anastasius. I literally write that in my notes every time that I find an Anastasius. Oh my gosh, I got to talk about Saint Roche yesterday. In oh my four. god. Well, because there's all this misinformation about someone named Saint Corona, who is, oh. like, the saint of, like, golden treasure, possibly, maybe, some places. And, like, that's not the saint of the plague, it's Saint Roche. Look at this sexy leg wound. <laughs> well, hey, see, we're we're spreading the information. If you want to hear all about Saint Roche and his beautiful dog, Four, uh join us on Patreon. I just love saying ginfor. I cannot spell ginfor. I was spelling it phonetically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, please send me on Discord how you spell it, and I will send it to you in the correct way. Oh, no, I figured out what it was, because Google was like, do you mean? Okay, so she spelled it like Gin, and for as in "Far," where it's more like Guinefort. Yes. <laughs> French. <laughs> Vitalian Granola. He entered the church at some point, and by 655, he was a cardinal priest. And that is it. That is all we know about his early life, because there's no sources other than literally that in the Liber Pontificalis until he's consecrated as Pope on July 30th of 657. Now, I read an article that speculated that since Eugene had died at the beginning of June and Vitalian was already consecrated by the end of July, they might not be waiting for Imperial permission anymore. But this completely discounts the fact that we've already discussed, which is that confirmation was given by the Exarch in Ravenna from time to time, and that is clearly what happened here. So if you wrote that article, I'm sorry, you are incorrect. And we do have letters sent from Vitalian to the emperor, who is still Constance II, immediately after his consecration to inform him that he had been elected. So we know that this pope is not trying to skirt the system. And oddly, he also sent one to Peter, who's the patriarch of Constantinople. And this is, this is a bit of a strange choice, considering the hostile relationships that we've seen recently between Constantinople and the Pope. But this is because Vitalian very much had it in mind to try and ease the tensions between the Empire and the Eastern Western Church. He thought that if he could make any positive strides with the Emperor, perhaps then the Monothelite controversy could be broached and settled in a less threatening and less violent way than what has been happening recently. He does not want to be beaten and arrested and exiled, and he doesn't want to be threatened to be roasted. But this is not what Vitalian said in his letters outright when he wrote to the emperor. Instead, he said nothing about it. He deliberately did not make a reference to monophyletism or the type of Constan's which was interpreted by the emperor for exactly what it was. A deliberate peace offering, right? If he says nothing at all, then this is a very purposeful move. And it worked, because the response that Vitalian receives from the emperor is a clear confirmation of his election, as well as a reiteration and imperial confirmation of the status of Rome as the Apostolic See and the head of the Universal Church. So he's like, ooh, I like this Pope. He's not trying to push my buttons. He's not trying to push this monothelitism thing. I'm going to just confirm his status as a reward. And along with the letter, Vitalian also receives an elaborate gift, which is a gold and jeweled codex of the Gospels. More peace offerings. He also got a response from Peter, the patriarch of Constantinople, although the content of that is significantly less clear because in Peter's letter, he presents his comments as though he and the Pope are in theological agreement, but he's also not committing to saying anything about monothelitism in the same way that Vitalian's letters had evasively skirted mention of the type of constance. So for the moment, although the Emperor and the Patriarch and the Pope do not actually agree, on the major Christological crisis, they all seem content to just sort of pretend that they did, and and not say anything specific. And to cement this new tentative concord, something quite substantial happens. Do you have any guesses what they might do as a as a gesture of goodwill? No, not at all. Pope Vitalian's Pope- name was added. The diptychs. The, the diptychs. <laughs> He's going to be the only pope for about 50 years that will have his name on the diptychs. I thought they got rid of the diptychs. Oh no, they just haven't put the pope on there for a long, long time. We haven't talked about the diptychs in forever. Well, the last pope to appear on the diptychs was Pope Honorius, because, you know, he was kind of about that monothelitism, all the way until the Third Council of Constantinople in 680. Vitalian will literally be the only pope on the diptychs. That's why we haven't talked about it. (laughs) What are you sending me? It's a (laughs) diptych! Oh my gosh, they're so cute. Dictychs are adorable. I know they're not diptychs, but they're diptychs. When we went to sound education and were at the Natural History Museum at Harvard, I found all the diptychs. There are so (laughs) many diptychs in there. There's like seven I think I took pictures of every single dictic that we found, so I'm going to have to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Poor small bean. Oh, and he had to carry around that heavy backpack, and he's like, my shoulders are killing me. And we're like, but the dick, dick. And then we gave him hell about hating jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Good times. Honestly, when all this pandemic is over, don't you all want to join us for a conference? We're a riot. <laughs> we went to the Glass Flowers place, and I yelled about yes. them having their genitals out. Yeah, in that very quiet space for I was yelling about glass genitals <laughs> so that we could send them to our, our friend Iris, who will love glass genitals. Yes, she adored the glass genitals. She was so excited, so I have no idea who was in the room with us. Needless to say, she definitely took notice of you yelling about flower genitals. They all just kind of stopped. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> Anyways, this tentative concord with the Pope was a a little slice of somewhat stability for the Emperor, who had a magnitude of personal and public crises on the go. So in 660, he'd grown increasingly paranoid that his brother Theodosius was about to usurp his position, so he had his brother assassinated. But this backfired on him in a colossal way, and Constant soon found himself so insanely unpopular in Constantinople that he had to decide to just, like, slip out and set up court all the way in Syracuse and Sicily to get away for a while, because, you know, things were not good. But when he did, the emperor was suddenly far closer in proximity to the Lombard territory in Italy held by Grimwald, who's the Duke of Benevento and the new King of the Lombards. They're back. So Emperor Constance did not enjoy seeing so much of Italy in the hands of the Lombard Empire. And since Grimwald was already currently tied up in his own conflict with the Neustrian Franks, they're back too he decides that he's going to launch an assault and take back land that should belong to the empire. But after a few complex failed sieges and raid attacks, Constans was defeated by the Lombards in the Battle of Ferino in May 663, which forced him into retreat. He had to leave Constantinople because everybody hates him. He decides he's going to pick a war with somebody loses and is now back on retreat to sicily he's battered and bruised his ego is is failing a little bit and so on the return to sicily constance decided that he's going to come to rome and pay his new friend slash frenemy the pope a visit Ooh, we have not had an emperor in rome in a very long time Now, whether the Pope was pleased or apprehensive about the Emperor suddenly coming to Rome, we don't really know. But he was determined to make the most of it. So, according to the Liber Pontificalis, on July 5th of 663, the Pope and the attendants of the Roman clergy went to meet the Emperor at the sixth milestone outside the city, and they welcome him and accompany him back to the city in a parade, all the way to St. Peter's, where the emperor gave gifts in honor of the Apostolic See. The emperor stayed in Rome for 12 days, during which time he would also bestow gifts on St. Paul's and St. Mary's, as well as other titular churches in the city. On the Sunday, the emperor held a full procession to St. Peter's to attend Mass conducted by the Pope, and to present the Pope with a gold pallium as a sign of great honor. Gold one? A gold one. The Pope now has a gold pallium. Like, is it just gold color or is it made of gold? I know they have gold cloth. I know that's a thing. My guess would be, like, because a pallium is supposed to be made out of wool, so I would imagine it was woven with, like, the golden thread and still had the wool. Where the wool comes from today is very, very significant, and it's a very, like, special process, so I imagine the wool still has to be part of that. Okay, so it was kind of like a combined thing. Yeah, okay. Knitted scarf with, you know, the little multicolored bits that you love so much. I hate using those. (laughs) The devil's ass hair. What? (laughs) Well, I'm sure we're going to get some knitting commentary on that because, wow! In both cross-stitch and knitting, if a thread is metallic or has a metallic weave in it, like, uh, I don't even know what they're called anymore. Where, where you know, all your yarn is made up of several threads woven together, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a metallic one in there, it's going to get all bunchy and weird and messed up. Oh. And it is going to be impossible to work with. It is not going to have the same stretch or give or anything as the rest of the yarn base. I can see that making sense. So, the devil's ass <laughs> He, he presented him a pallium that was laden with the devil's ass hair. <laughs> so there's that. I'm not sure that's exactly what the pope wanted. And then on the following Saturday, the emperor visited the pope again to, as the Liber Pontificalis puts it, bathe and dine there in the Basilica of Vigilius. They had a bath together? Um, okay. It's a very Roman thing. I mean, that's, what struck me here the most interestingly is this is in the basilica of vigilius this is not where i would want to hang out especially as the emperor right like vigilius had a very colored checkered past with the emperor not dealing with it and finally the next day he attended a final mass and prepared to leave the city so this all seems very good this is very good secular relations between the emperor and the pope they're in person they're celebrating mass they're dining together Everything is great. But when he left the city, the emperor decides to do a very strange thing. He and all of his army confiscated all of the bronze sculptures, altar vessels, and artworks that they could find, including the bronze tiles that roofed the Pantheon, and then left with it all. And remember, the Pantheon was now a church, not just some, like, aged pagan building for looting. He just gathered up all of the bronze that he could find in the city in whatever form it was in, and took it all. The question you might be thinking is, why? Yeah. And the answer is, don't really know. (laughs) The best guess that we have is that he was using it to supply the military, considering that he just took a beating. But it's definitely... Parting on a sour note, right? Like, hey, we just had this lovely time. I am taking all of your bronze. Goodbye. It's very strange and odd. And things were gonna sour even further because then Vitalian faces a serious problem with Ravenna, centered around the Archbishop Maris. And the Emperor is gonna get involved here. And for this we're going to be using a source called the Book of Pontiffs of the Church of Ravenna or in its original Latin, the Liber Pontificalis Ecclesiae Ravennatis by Agnellus of Ravenna, a 9th century abbot and historian in the city. So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a Liber Pontificalis of all the bishops of Ravenna, but with Agnellus's very personal and conversational writing style attached. He tells us, The bishop of Ravenna had many troubles with the Roman bishop, many contests, many disturbances, many altercations. He went to Constantinople on many occasions that he might free the church from the yoke or domination of the Romans. For reasons that we are unclear on, Maurice and Vitalian were at odds. As a result, Maurice wanted Ravenna to be removed from the jurisdiction of Rome. And, I mean, clearly at this time, as with any archbishopric, Ravenna had direct contact with Rome and was directly subject to the apostolic see as all sees on the planet were supposed to do. But if we stop to consider the dynamics of power that have been at hand for well over a century now, with the papacy functioning essentially at the whim of the emperor, you can probably understand why a bishop in Ravenna, which is the seat of the imperial exarchate, might not feel the desire to be beholden to Rome. You know, hey, Constantinople often gets to override Rome, so why can't we? we're an imperial powerhouse as well. And so, fitting that same model of power dynamic, Marius applies to the emperor, not to the pope, in an attempt to make Ravenna an autocephalous, which means self-headed, diocese, independent of Rome's authority. Can you imagine how this went down with Vitalian? Bad. Poorly. The pope then wrote to the emperor in an indignant protest. But Constans refused to side with the Pope, and the Emperor granted Morris this request, passing an edict to make Ravenna autocephalous. Back to Agnellus here for his account. It was done thus, and the Church of Ravenna was withdrawn so that no future pastor of the Ravenna Church need to ever afterward go to Rome to the Bishop of the Roman See for consecration, nor should he have the Pope's rule over him nor that he should at any time be under the dominion of the Roman bishop, but might consecrate his choice with three of his own bishops, and he brought back the pallium from the emperor in Constantinople. Clearly, in giving the pope a golden pallium, the emperor now fancied himself having the rights to to give other bishops palliums, wherever he so chose. And battalions livid livid. He demands the recognition of the rights of papal primacy that Constans had literally sent him in a letter, and summoned Morris to Rome to provide a theological justification for his actions. But Morris refused to engage with the Pope at all, and refused to go. It happened in that time that the Roman Pope sent a legation to Morris, telling him to hasten to Rome, wanting to subjugate him to his dominion. Having received the letter, Morris read it and folded it, saying to the legates of the Apostolic See, What is this? What do you strive to do? Is there not an agreement and confirmed obligation between us that neither he should raise trouble against me and my church or his successors against my successors? He has a sign packed by him, and I keep his, as well as all things written between us and confirmed by the signatures of my priest and his. In his hand, the received document is confirmed, You have written your letters there for yourselves. I do not agree to these orders. Return to him who sent you and tell him what you have heard. Nah, I'm not coming. Go tell your pope man that he has no power over me. Well, imagine Vitalian's anger when he learns that the legates are coming back to bring the refusal. He immediately excommunicates Morris as a schismatic, because of course he does. Having returned, they told the sequence of events. Then the indignant pope ordered written a letter of obligation, wound about with the chains of anathema, and he signed it with his own hand, saying that if the Archbishop Morris would not come to the Apostolic See, he would not have permission to sing masses, nor might any man approach him for communication, nor might any cleric cling to him, nor approach the sacrosanct altar with him, nor offer any oblation with him or for him. He's excommunicated. But Morris continued to have none of it. And when he was informed of his excommunication status, he decides he's going to double down and excommunicate the Pope. <gasps> you can't do that. You can't do that, but he sure tries. And Agnellus supports this endeavor. He says, However, Morris was bold. He did not accept that he was bound by the chains of the Jews and cast out from the kingdom of God. The legates of the Roman See brought all these things inserted in a letter they offered it to Bishop Morris of the city of Ravenna. But Morris, accepting it, read the unhappy words, and he was filled with anger, not with outward fury, but like an irrevocable rage. And he wrote a letter similarly sending restrictions of anathema so that the Pope would not have license to sing Mass, as he did not. And he ordered this to be written corresponding to the Roman letter and sent it to Rome to the said Pope. You can't fire me, I quit. Unfortunately for us, the story will not go any farther with the drama right now. The autocephalous Ravenna will continue to be a problem after the death of Vitalian and after the death of Morris, who Agnellus says on his deathbed, like, literally begged the clergy not to return to communion with Rome and to consecrate their own successor and, like, keep his schism going. And they do for a while. So Ravenna will not be restored to the jurisdiction of Rome till 683 when Constans' son, Constantine IV, will revoke his father's edict and confirm Rome as the Apostolic See with rights over Ravenna. For this moment, this is a huge loss of papal primacy. Now that we've mentioned Constans' son, this is also where we're going to say goodbye to Emperor Constans II. It's probably a good thing. When he got back to Syracuse, after he had just confiscated all of Rome's bronze, he seemed to have tried a similar thing in this city, where he just demands a hell of a lot from them, this time in the form of a seriously oppressive tax. And so, he gets assassinated in 668. What? The phrase, knifed in the bath, comes up a lot in the sources. Knifed in the bath? Knifed in the bath. The people were not happy with him, and he gets knifed in the bath. Mm. So goodbye, Emperor Constance II, who, like, threatened to roast our last pope, exiled and murdered the the pope before that. How old was he? How old was Constance II? He was a baby for a little bit. Yeah, he was very young when he came to the throne, and he died at the age of 37. 37? Mm Mm-hmm knifed in a bath, knifed in a bath. <laughs> Pants on the ground. <laughs> it's like that 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 uh Homer Simpson gif with Bart where he's in the tub and Bart's gonna hit him with a chair, but it's a knife. <laughs> exactly. So, he's succeeded by his son, Constantine the 4th, who's also known as the Bearded. Does he have a beard? No. He does not have a beard. He he's called uh Constantine for the Bearded cuz he's often incorrectly associated with someone else. Constantine IV, the bearded who did not have a beard. He's still fairly young right now, and when he succeeds to the throne, Vitalian openly supports him, even against a rival supporter called Misesius, which is just the greatest. And this boded exceptionally well for the Pope, because as it turned out, Constantine was not his father's son when it came to the Monopoly controversy and he had no stomach to enforce the type of constans or renew conflict with the church. So Vitalian's like, great. He jumps on the change of approach, and he immediately began to write to the emperor, hoping that if Constantine was not about the monopoly cause, maybe the pope could persuade him to take a stand for orthodoxy and reconcile the eastern churches with the canons that had been set out by the Lateran Synod of 649 under Martin. Unfortunately for Vitalian, this didn't go unnoticed by the new patriarch of Constantinople, a man called Theodore, who's like, Oh, you're trying to slide in with the emperor about orthodoxy? I'm gonna take your names off the diptychs! Oh no. Yeah, so they're gone again. (laughs) God damn it, the diptychs. They will get replaced after the Third Council of Constantinople, so he will still be the only pope with his name on it, but they were taken off again at some point before they were put back on. But Vitalian's papacy is going to continue to be a papacy of contradictory events, because he definitely scores a win for papal primacy in one incident where he successfully exercises his primal authority over a distinctively eastern diocese. Like, in comparison to what happened with Ravenna, here he has a major win. And this happens in Crete, and it has to do with John the Bishop of Lapa. John had been deposed in a synod for a uncanonical matter under the metropolitan Paulus, and when he tried to appeal to the Pope, which he has the right to do, Paulus had imprisoned John instead. Not good. But John had managed to escape, and he headed straight to Rome to appeal to the Pope personally. And the Pope welcomes John and convenes a synod to be held in December of 667 in Rome, to hear out the charges. John was found to have been deposed unlawfully and was declared innocent of any charges, so he is restored to his bishopric and all the property, including all the monasteries that had been under his jurisdictions, they get returned to him. And because he was dealing with canonical irregularities, Vitalian was also made aware of two deacons in Crete who had been married after their consecration to the diaconate, so they're removed from their clerical status as well. So here he gets to go in and be like, Hey, I am the Pope. I am the prime authority of the church. Restore this man, fix these two deacons. I'm getting the church of Crete all in order. Vitalian would also be successful in his relationship with the English church, which was now holding its own synods because it's now been proliferated enough that there is a standing historical church. So in 664, the famous Synod of Whitby was held. Overseen by the King of Northumbria, Oswe, which had determined that Northumbria would defer to the tradition of Rome as the Apostolic See and confirmed the Pope as the apostolic successor of Peter, this extended to a decision to use the traditional Roman calculation for Easter rather than that incorrect Southern Irish calculation we talked about in Honorius's episode and They decreed that the monastic tonsure would also follow the tradition of Rome as well. And I tried to look into this, and this is where I ended up going down a rabbit hole about different tonsure practices. Hairstyles? Hairstyles! (gasps) Really bad hairstyles? Well, apparently they're different somehow, so I was trying very hard to look into that and try and figure out what the hell the difference between the Roman tonsure practices and the early English were. Is there a difference? Well, enough that they had to make this a canon of the famous Synod of There was some kind of difference. It's not just a donut? Well, maybe it was a square? Maybe they had a beignet instead of a donut? (laughs) A donut hole? So everything else is bald except for the... I mean, it's possible. I did look. I didn't find anything. I tried. This could have been an interesting discussion. Hey, if anybody has any sources about early medieval tonsure practices, I'm interested. What did they shave themselves with? Just, like, a knife? Oh, yeah. Definitely. With, with a knife. Like, Where's the Gillette razors when you need them? Probably a fair ways away. These are also, like, monks, so they're living very aesthetically. It's probably the same knife that they use to, you know, butcher their meat and cut up their roast. And Only one knife. Yep, only one knife for everybody. So, after the synod, the Bishop of Canterbury, Deus Dedit, died, and King Oswy and King Eckbert of Kent jointly sent a priest called Wigard to Rome. Oh, no. It's Wigard, as in wig hard. Not better. <laughs> no, not better. They send Wigard to Rome to have him consecrated as a replacement for the Bishop of Canterbury. And Vitalian probably would have been very happy to confirm this consecration if Wiggard hadn't immediately died of the plague as soon as he arrived in Rome. Oh. So was the plague happening? Why wasn't he practicing social distancing? The plague is always happening in Rome right now. And yeah, social distancing in the ancient world was definitely not a thing. Vitalian has to write this awkward letter back to King Oswy to let him know that his choice for bishop wasn't going to work out because of death. He says, I'm going to send a bishop for you, like, so that you don't have to send another guy here and risk him dying again. I'm just going to send a bishop for you. He's going to come from Rome. So the first person that the Pope looked to to potentially serve as the next Bishop of Canterbury was a Neapolitan abbot called Hadrian. But when he was presented with the position, Hadrian declined because he said, Oh, no, I'm not worthy of that at all. Don't make it me. I'm so not worthy. So instead, he recommends another monk from the Monastery of St. Anastasius in Rome called Theodore of Tarsus. And Theodore was an aged man, he's like 66 at the time of his consecration, but he was well-educated and willing to take on the position. He's consecrated in Rome on March 26th of 668, and when he left for England, he decides he's going to take Hadrian, the guy who didn't want the job and the guy who recommended him for the job, who would serve as the abbot of Canterbury under him. And Theodore was widely accepted by the Church of England when he arrived, and he was an extremely active bishop, filling positions and reorganizing the church and preventing conflicts between rulers, establishing schools, influencing kings to found monasteries, and more. So this was a very good choice on behalf of Pope Vitalian. Now, as a final note, Pope Vitalian introduced organ music to the church. Apparently. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, it's... I've sourced this from various non-scholarly articles where it's, like, offhand mentioned with no sources, but also from a Jstor article called Early Organ Music by John Tasker Howard Jr. The organ has been invented? Yes! It's definitely been invented. Is it one of, like, the wall-sized organs? Is that where we're at? Probably not. I mean, that would have been so extreme for this time. The scholar on early organ music... John Tasker Howard Jr. He claims that Pope Vitalian became the first pope to use organ music in tandem with church services in the year 666. Ironic. And thus began the association of churches and organs. And if this is true, this would be somewhat major, although we don't really see a widespread adoption of organs in churches anywhere for quite a while. Like they exist, but it won't be a huge thing until the 12th century, but There is a long-standing tradition that most people will associate with the church today, organ music in the church, so there's that. Then I found an article on a website called truthmagazine.com, which suggests that not all historians agree that it was Vitalian who made the famous association, but most of its arguments were about the introduction of musical instruments in general, rather than just the organ. And I think that's probably an entirely separate issue, so it's, it's a little bit convoluted. I would think that instruments were used in liturgical services long before the organ was. Maybe Vitalian did this thing, and maybe he didn't. So he died on January 27th of 672. Was he stabbed in the bath? He was not knifed in the back, no. Which is probably a good thing, because he probably wouldn't have deserved that. He was buried at Old St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's. And no epitaph survives. And that is sad, because apparently nobody in the late 7th century was recording these epitaphs. They just, yeah. Yeah. Didn't care. Just didn't want to preserve these, Pope man. So, yeah. That is Vitalian, and it is time to rate him. Papatum Falium. This is gonna be... An interesting category, because we have some good things. He appointed an able bishop for Canterbury, which cemented much of the growth for the English Church. Even though he wasn't involved with the Synod of Whitby, the canons are a reflection of their commitment to Rome as the head of the Universal Church. He exercised authority over an Eastern-dominated bishopric in the Crete situation. If he did introduce the organ to liturgical services, this is definitely something. But... Then, on the bad side, we have Ravenna becoming autocephalous, and this is a huge blow for paper primacy and power and influence and it's It's not good, so there's some good, but there's definitely a big bad. What do you think it's worth uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards like a three a three I think that's it's probably about fair it's very generous i'm gonna I'm gonna knock that down one again because it's you know this this Ravenna thing it's a problem. It's basically flying in the face of papal primacy, so I'm going to give him a two, and he'll get a five in that category. All right, that seems like a good enough score. Yeah. Fructus Prohibitum. Not a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. No, there's just no scandal yet. Which isn't to say that there aren't scandalous popes coming. Even though I feel like we give zeros in this category a lot, we're still in the earlier chunk of the church, and that's definitely going to change at some point. Seculari impactum. He had more peace with Constance II than most of the popes who preceded him by quite a lot, and by supporting Constantine IV, he was able to get a lot more leniency on the type, But then we have the situation where the emperor is supporting the Bishop of Ravenna, and that's not good. He's also the only pope in a long time to appear on the diptychs because of good secular relations, though, so... That's true. It's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm going to be a little more generous to this one, because I can. (laughs) So I'm going to give him a five this time instead of a three. All right, I'm going to give him that three. So then he'll get an eight in that category, which seems about right. You know, it's good. It's he made some good relationships and that had some positive impacts. And then he lost all of the bronze in Rome because the emperor is weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Facium Sanctus. I I want you to imagine that this is right as he's watching the emperor leave. With all of the bronze. All of the bronze? No. Oh, no, he. Okay. Look, I expected a shocked face. No, this it is, is just, an just unimpressed a face. Who, Yeah, he's like, eh, I don't give up. About that bronze. You know what? Immediately came to mind when I saw this photo. You know that Olympian who got the silver medal and has the really unimpressed face. <laughs> no, every single image of this man is that face. I'm gonna send you two more because this is the unimpressed Olympian, a hundred percent. I mean, he kind of looks like that kid who got whose mother got pajama day and picture day mixed up. I have not seen that one. Oh my god, really? (laughs) Find me unimpressed Olympian and I will find you Pajama Day. I will find you unimpressed Olympian. There you go. Oh yeah, no, she looks unimpressed. I remember her. Yep, and he's got the exact same face in all of these. (laughs) This one. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) I didn't know, I've seen that picture now, I just didn't know that that was... The context of that child's face, yes. He is thoroughly unimpressed. We can can establish that. The meme level of his unimpressedness is up for debate, but he is unimpressed. (laughs) Going back to that first one and seeing his dead eyes and half scowl about it, I mean, he's going to get some points for me in this category. I'm going to give him... You give him, give him. I'm going to give him like a, I'm debating between a six or a seven. Oh, I was going to give him an eight. So go with, go with your heart. I will, I will give him a seven, which will give him a 15. And when tabulated out, that gives him a 3.75. I don't know if he would be impressed with that score or not. So Mm, he may just give us that face again. Well, let's see how he plays out when we get to the end and see if he, if his score is face worthy. Tempus Pontificus. July 30th, 657, to July 27th, 672. He's going to score some points here, because that's 14 and a half years, and a score of 3.625. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, do 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 Yep. He is a saint. He gets a feast day, January 27th. He is not, however, the patron saint of anything. Oh, gosh. Um, patron saint of... Being underwhelmed. Yeah, underwhelming things, yeah. Yeah, I think, how do we phrase that? Underwhelmment. I don't think that's a word. No, it's not. I'm just going to put being underwhelmed. Only whelmed. I don't even know if he's whelmed. He looks underwhelmed. The subpar levels of whelm. Well, okay, let's have a look at his total score and see how he would feel about that. I think he would be underwhelmed. His score is a 21.375. I mean, he's out of the teens, so he could be a little whelmed, just regular whelmed. He should be well, because I'm, I'm whelmed for him. You know, I, I, I'm impressed a little bit by him scoring above the teens. You know, considering that poor Eugene got a 5.5 and was in the running for our lowest scorer ever, despite having done nothing wrong, (laughs) this dude, you know, he did a fair bit better. So, now I must ask you if you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough and leaving an impact enough for a papable? No. I think his face says it all. No. No, it's not. But... That will not be the end of our episode because we have some very special thank yous to make. We have some temporal punishments to absolve for our Patreon subscribers, so we want to thank Allison Carter. Ego te absolvo. And we would also like to thank Katriana, who sent us a book from our Amazon wish list, and it's Tombs of the Popes by Gregorovius, which is going to be and amazing sources we go through as we know we love to talk about their tunes it has pictures and like it's one of those uh what is it called the classic reprint series so it's one of those books that are really really hard to find but someone has taken them and printed them in this wonderful like very modern format which is so cool and i'm excited about that so thank you This is going to help in isolation, you guys. Anything off the Amazon wishlist that we receive is definitely going to be read to get us ahead. So thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon, Allison, and by Amazon, Katriana. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. And I think with that, we can wrap up and say thank you and goodbye. Bye.